Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 131. General Jan Smuts and his commander have seized the small town of Springbok in the far northern Cape. As we heard last week, the town fell after a few hours of fighting and the surrender of the three forts there that dominated its defences. After the town was taken, our narrator, Denise Reitz, had fallen into a deep sleep, having had no rest for three full days and nights. Reitz slept for 24 hours, and when he awoke, it was to a surprise. I found my friend, Nicholas Swart, sitting on the bed beside me. He was almost recovered from his wounds and had just arrived from the south. An extraordinary man, this Nicholas Swart. He'd been shot through the hip while leaning over, and the bullet had passed through his body, exiting through his chest. Rates believed he was probably not going to survive. And that was only a few weeks after Swart had been shot in the arm, shattering his ulna. Yet, here he was, less than a month after appearing near death. He said that General Smuts had taken Van Diemeter's and Bouvier's men against the neighbouring town of Concordia, but had left special instructions that I was not to be disturbed. Without a moment's hesitation, Raitz leapt up and saddled his mare. Jenny then rode after Smuts's commander, leaving Swart behind. When he reached Concordia, which was only five miles away from Springbok, Raitz found the English had already surrendered. There were 150 prisoners, but Raitz was not impressed. A motley collection of volunteers and levies with many rifles and an abundance of clothing and other supplies. Smuts immediately sent Raitz along with another Boer trooper, P. Muller, with a letter to the commanding officer of the third town nearby called Okeep, which was a copper mining centre. However, when they rode up to the town with their white flag on a whip stick, they could see that the battle to seize this defensive position was going to be extremely difficult. I saw at once that here was a harder nut to crack, for a ring of blockhouses and wire entanglements stood all around the town, and inside the circle was a large central fort flanked by a strong redoubt on a conical hill. They continued riding forward when a group of English soldiers ran up. Reitz explained that they had a letter from their general demanding they surrender. One of them slapped the stock of his rifle and said, Surrender, surrender, be damned, we're Brummigan boys and we're waiting for you. As Reitz and Muller sat on their horses, an officer rushed towards them from the blockhouse, and this officer was apparently not a gentleman. For he violently abused us, he blustered and swore, and at the point of his revolver ordered us to put up our hands while he went through our pockets. When I protested that we were under the flag of truce, he violently told me to hold my tongue and blindfolded us. They were then frog-marched through the town on foot, while the officer harangued them for suggesting the English would ever surrender. I answered him at intervals until he clapped a revolver to my forehead and threatened to blow my brains out if I uttered another word, when I began to suspect that we had to do with a madman and held my tongue. But the madman officer was only just beginning, apparently. He then caught sight of Reitz's saddle, which was clearly marked as belonging to Lieutenant McIntyre. Not only did these Boers have the temerity to ride up calling for their surrender, but... I had come into their lines on a British saddle and a horse marked with a British broad arrow. The officer bawled even more obscene oaths and jostled the two young Boers. Reitz 
as we've heard over this series, was from a good family and appreciated the niceties of proper military discourse. He was the most disagreeable, in fact, the only disagreeable English who I met in the entire war. Remarkable that throughout the almost three years of fighting, he had always felt well-treated by British officers, even though they were indulging in what was a bitter struggle. The two Boers had arrived at a camp, at least it appeared so from the sounds they could hear about them. After another hour of abuse, a more senior officer arrived. A different stamp of man rode up, a superior officer, at whose approach our tormentor faded away, not to reappear. The superior officer was furious when he discovered how General Smuts's emissaries had been treated and led them to a nearby tent. Still blindfolded, they were each handed a cigar and a cooling drink. His name was Colonel Shelton, and he said the British were not going to surrender O'Keep. The camp was well defended, he said, and he had a great deal of ammunition and a strong company or two of men. He then handed the Boer emissaries a letter for General Smuts and took them in a courteous way, back to the town's edge, then bade them farewell. The reply we brought from Colonel Shelton was couched in more elegant language than that received earlier in the morning from the Brummigan boys. Pretty much it said the same thing, though. In response, Smut said they would have to blockade the town. The strategy he decided on was to surround the town and then wait for a relief force to arrive. Smuts had already seized a great deal of arms and ammunition, as well as food and material from the assaults on Springbok and Concordia, and he said they didn't really need to attack or keep directly. Smuts then took a group of men, along with Rates, and went to see the lay of the town himself. When they crested the last rise before Okeep, it lay 1,500 yards away, and there appeared to be some kind of parade going on. Smuts ordered his men to open fire on the troops as they gathered in the square. While the Boers blasted away, Unable to really see if anyone was hit, a large flock of goats came down the slope with a Nama man as shepherd. He turned the animals away and Rates ran towards him shouting that he should herd his goats towards the Boers. The Nama shepherd refused. Instead of obeying, he, bravely enough, urged them back the faster. As it would have been foolish to allow so valuable a meat supply to escape, I was obliged to shoot, but aimed low and brought him to earth with a bullet through his leg. Rates saw the shepherd crawling towards the nearest blockhouse and was fetched on a stretcher. I dare say he recovered, Rates wrote in obvious relief. The sheep were now in the Boers' hands and they rode back to Concordia. Meanwhile, General Smuts was rethinking his tactics. It was important, said the general, to lob a couple of hand grenades at the defences. Colonel Shelton had sent a heliograph message towards Port Nolith on the coast asking for help and Smuts knew that a relief force would then be making its way to Okeep. So he decided the Boer attack on Okeep would take place that night, but first they returned to Concordia to manufacture a supply of hand grenades using dynamite and fuses at the copper mine. As usual, Rates was part of the small group of Marnie Moritz's men who were to assault the two redoubts. One was on what they named High Sugarloaf Kopi, the other on a lower ridge to the right. Commandant Ben Kutsia, Rates's old friend, was to lead the assault party of 20 men. That night they retraced their steps from earlier the day and worked their way on foot over broken ground to the ridge where the smaller blockhouse lay. 
we crawled stealthily upward until we were challenged by Sentry with his, Halt! Who goes there? Ben could see her lit one of the fuses and flung his hand grenade. It blasted a section of blockhouse wall, which fell, and ten men came tumbling out. They were all members of the Warwickshire Regiment. None were killed, but all were shaken and dazed. The ten were stripped of their firearms and ammunition, then marched to Concordia, while the assault party continued on its way. However, things did not go as planned. Somehow, they missed the larger blockhouse on Sugar Hill Copy, and then found themselves in the middle of town. Not only in town, but they had crept into the cemetery. They were hopelessly lost, and worse, they were now very close to the main British camp, which they decided to call Fort Shelton. Sentries opened fire on them. They ran back, but then came up against the larger blockhouse, which they had missed on the way in. This time, their hand grenades caused no obvious damage, and they retreated for the night. Smuts listened to their report when they returned to Concordia. He ordered another attack the following evening, this time to be led by Commandant Bouvet. Rates joined this assault party as well. We threw more than a dozen bombs, but in vain. The men within maintained an unceasing fire. The dynamite seemed ineffective, and we had to return empty-handed. And they were forced to endure the victorious British troops trumpeting their success. Our efforts must have been anxiously followed by the rest of the Oakkeep garrison, for as we scrambled down, there came a hail through the darkness. Number four, Blockhouse, how are you lads? To which a voice replied, Number four, Blockhouse, A.A. all right. And there was much cheering in the town below. General Smuts seemed to take the news badly. He said while the Blockhouse meant very little, the Boers had committed themselves to take it, and take it they would. This wasn't the usual response by a Boer general. In the past, if an attack was seemingly of little importance, they would prefer to conserve their men and ammunition for something more important, but not this time. Just to make sure of success, Smuts sent the chillingly effective Marnie Moritz, the man who massacred Lilyfontein Mission Station. With him went the Marquis de Kersausen, a young French adventurer who had been his constant associate since the war began. Of course, Rates went along for the third attack. That night they managed to reach a rocky ledge below the blockhouse. Moritz seemed to have a special plan for the men inside. The first thing he did was stand on another boer's shoulder to peer over the ledge and calculate the distance to the blockhouse. He then climbed down and fastened three bombs together weighing more than 20 pounds. No other man could have hoped to throw so heavy a missile that length but standing precariously on the shoulders of one of his men, he lit the fuse and hurled the triple grenade right on the roof. It was a ghostly scene as the fuse flickered brightly, lighting up the area for many yards around. Then there was a tremendous roar and stones and sandbags went flying in all directions. Silence followed, and realizing that the defenders were dead or stunned, we helped each other onto the rocky platform. They crawled over and under the wire entanglements and rushed the blockhouse entrance. From within we heard groans and a muffled voice, Stop throwing! Stop throwing! So we crowded in. Striking matches we saw that the roof was blown down upon the soldiers. About half a dozen were dead. The others, made up of Warwickshire Regiment troops and Nama soldiers, were stunned. 
The sergeant in command told us that they were the original garrison who had been there since our first attack. The Boers stripped the defensive position of all ammunition and rifles. They removed the dead and wounded, then placed the remaining sticks of dynamite in the loopholes and blew number four blockhouse into ruin. General Smuts declared himself satisfied and said no further attacks would be attempted. They had taken over 200 prisoners in the three different assaults on Springbok, Concordia and Okeep. It was time for another rest. The British soldiers in the camp were not going to come out and fight, and the Boers were able to sit back. Reitz and his friend Edgar Dunker and Nicolas Swart set up housekeeping in a small cottage. There was plenty to eat and drink, and they waited in relative luxury for the inevitable British relief force from Cape Town to arrive. Smuts had posted von Diemeter's commando about 20 miles away to the west towards the Atlantic Ocean astride the railway line that ran to Port Northern. And so we waited quietly for the order to break away south on what would have been the most dramatic stroke of the war. Reitz believed they would be sent to strike Cape Town itself. He was right about Smuts's plans, but as we will hear, fate would now intervene before they had the chance to head off. That's for upcoming podcasts. Meanwhile in Pretoria, Lord Kitchener was tearing at his characteristic moustache. Remember how he had collapsed upon hearing about Lord Methuen's defeat at the hands of General Coeur de la Rey? How were the British to capture this large and well-fed marauder? De la Rey had escaped certain capture to turn on his pursuers three times in the last six months. First, at Moodville on the 30th of September 1901, when he had mauled part of Kekovic's column. Then at Acerspreit on 24th February 1902, when he had devoured most of von Donop's wagon convoy, protected by a large force of 700 men. De La Rey had seized 150 wagons, food, ammunition and material. Then at Tuerbosch he had swallowed Lord Methuen whole. The British now regarded De La Rey as their biggest threat, far more deadly than both General Smuts and Christian de Vett, as well as looting British bully beef and .303 ammunition, he'd also looted six field guns and machine guns. De La Rey's men were now at the peak of their military power, and of course the British were sending half-trained yeomen into battle. So Kitchener decided to launch another steamroller, or massive drive, against General De La Rey in the western Transvaal. This was to be the same column that had managed to drive General Christian de Vett out of the Free State. Kitchener ordered up Rawlinson, his most successful column commander, along with Wills Sampson, who was a brilliant intelligence officer. Clackstorp was to be the centre of their operations. 16,000 mounted British troops descended on the tin roof town. 13 units arranged in four super columns and commanded by Rawlinson Kekovich, Colonel A.N. Rochefort and Lord Kitchener's younger brother, Walter Kitchener. So the steamroller lumbered off on the first drive on the 23rd of March, only a fortnight after the end of the last drive, but it failed to trap General de la Rey. They did succeed in forcing the Boer general to discard the six field guns and two of his pom-pom automatic cannons, but these slowed down his mobility anyway. And yet, the number of Boers seized was minuscule. Eight killed, 165 captured, and no de la Rey. So Lord Kitchener decided he'd head off to Claxtorp to see what was going on for himself. On the 26th of March, 1902, 
the officer commanding British forces in South Africa, sailed into Klagstorp in his armoured train. These trains, as Thomas Packenham explains, were like ships. They carried guns and searchlights, and Kitchener's staff travelled in one called Her Majesty's Train Cobra, commanded, believe it or not, by an admiral. What had gone wrong was the ability to collect intelligence. Colonel Aubrey Wills Sampson, who had been so good at eliciting really good information from black chiefs and villagers in the eastern Transvaal, found that the western Transvaal was a blank sheet. His network of African agents, who had been so good in the east, were unable to be effective in the west. The main reason, you see, was General Kurstadare had ruthlessly cleared the whole region of blacks in order to protect himself. The treatment he meted out was severe, and Delaray and his methods were repeatedly referenced during the latter days of apartheid by the extreme right-wing group in South Africa called the Afrikaner Weerstandsbeweging, the AWB. So Kitchener, instead of using guile to beat guile, perhaps sending out turncoat Boer men to pretend to be part of Delaray's commando, he preferred the use of sheer might. As we'll hear next week, it would be the unfortunate Canadians who suffered the most in the upcoming battle called Boschbult. But now we must call a halt. To my listeners around the world, I would just like to say that like you, we are in lockdown here, quarantined in South Africa. We all, I suppose, need mental strength, like some of these men and women we've heard about in this podcast series, as we face one of the most severe afflictions the globe has seen over the last 200 years. Well, I guess... No time for trite and cheesy words. Just be strong, sleep well, stay sheltered. I'd also like to say a big thank you to Ryan, who sent me some documents featuring his great-grandfather James, who was part of the Imperial Yeomanry 13th that was defeated at the battle in the town of Lindley. While his great-grandfather was not with the unit at that point, he did fight in Bethlehem and Sant River. After travelling to Lindley some years ago, Ryan actually bought a house in the small town and travels there frequently, listening to this podcast during the car journey. What a great story. Thanks so much for making contact, Ryan. I'll carry on searching for more details about the Imperial Yeomanry and their battles around Bethlehem between April and June 1900. I'll send you what I find. If you would like to message me, you can do this by email through the website abwarpodcast.com or on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. Daar in Marisal, ek ooit weer kan sê, o my skaad het ek weer gekry. En sonder gedal langs die moerdierse val, het sy vroorlogsdag geblei. O bring my terug na die Oudtransval, daar waar my sari woon. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woon my sari Marisal. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.